You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Erica Lance, and my co-host today is the amazing C.R. Rice. Um, Don't forget, of course, to like and subscribe to us. If you want to leave a review, we would love it. We love reviews. We'd prefer you do it at the end of the episode when you've been drinking along, because those are the best. Um, If you have an author you'd like to have on this podcast, you can email us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com. I'm not going to say what I've already been doing this afternoon. And we will find them for you. Or if you're an author, you can also email us. And I want to thank our sponsor, who is Skunk Brothers Spirits. Whew, today's a day already. Um, if you go to their website, coupon code DWA10, you can get 10% off. It's kind of amazing. And our guest today, drum roll, please, is the amazing Carol Vindenhenda. I said it right. Vindenhenda. Yes. great job erica you did it you did it okay thank you and welcome for being welcome to being on the podcast oh my goodness i'm okay i'm getting it together let's talk about what we've already been drinking today (laughs) it is a friday after all yes it is friday so i'm drinking gin and tonic but i found this owens craft mixers which puts mint cucumber and lime in the oh. yeah it's in the soda water so it's already like all i have to do is put this and the gin in there and i don't How have to is get it? fancy and i'm super excited about this so i maybe tried it earlier to make sure it wasn't terrible and so this may be my second gin and tonic of the day but i have to say it it is a very very good mixer it's very light and so i stand by that at this point in time like they're not it. a sponsor cr what are you drinking well, I have, I have dealing with a stuffy nose. So ironically, I went back to our pestilence drink, which is our green tea and vodka because I'm being healthy and trying to fix my immune system. We so. have got to stop saying this is a healthy beverage. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble eventually. We'll put so, a little disclaimer. A little disclaimer. Okay, Carol, what are you drinking with us today? So I actually, I don't know if you're going to be able to see it on screen. I have a gorgeous martini glass and three olives in there. Uh, My husband had actually introduced me to dirty martinis and something about that little zing of olive juice along um, in with the gin and the vermouth is just a great combination. So thanks for giving me an excuse. Yeah. I like giving people an excuse to drink in the afternoon. (laughs) Yeah. This so is why Carol, I put vacation hours into my time sheet <laughs> so I could drink with you guys. I probably should have done that earlier. I did not. So it's yeah. Or we can just deal. So Carol, for those that don't know you, what do you write? Thanks for asking. So I write contemporary fiction and my characters are set in the here and now. I'm calling in right now from New Jersey. And a lot of my stories actually take place in Manhattan, in New Jersey, in this Northeast area. But the characters travel as well. So if we have a chance to talk about Paris or Beijing, then those will all come into play as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. When did you start? Okay, let's go to when did you start writing? Not when did you start writing professionally? When did you start writing? 
Well, I've always absolutely loved literature. And even as a kid, I probably started penning stories and dreaming them up. The world of my imagination was a fun place to go. Um, and that is different, you're right, from when I actually started writing professionally. And the origin story of how Goodbye Orchid started is very interesting. It um, you know, really came at a place that was difficult in our um, lives. One of my boys was having, one of my twins was having a hard time and I turned to writing as a place of solace. Initially for myself, I thought, you know, I'd been journaling and writing all these years and it's a, you know, lovely place to go into, a place where I can feel flow. And so I started writing the story and it was so emotional to pour everything that was going on in our lives onto the page. And so what came out was a really emotional story that was actually inspired by seeing stories in the news about combat wounded veterans. And what oh. really inspired me about them was the strength and resilience they demonstrate to get back to good was what inspired the whole Goodbye Orchid series. Very cool. So when did you, when did you start writing that? When did you start writing quote unquote professionally? Yes. Quote unquote with that. So I want to say it goes back quite a few years. And I know <clears throat> from hearing other authors talk to you on your podcast, this is a very common story that authors take years to go along their journey. And I want to say we'd have to go back to 2013 when the ideas first started coming to me, when I was first starting to handwrite in a notebook and initially for me. And, and as the story started coming out, I really wanted to improve my craft. And that's when I started joining the write, a writing community. When I joined a writer's group, that's when I realized I had something special. And it's because my writing group was one that met in person and we would read our work aloud to each other around Mary Lee Waldron's kitchen table. Oh, and at wow. one of these, yeah, I really loved it. So old fashioned, right? Um, at one of these read alouds, I shared a passage about Goodbye Orchid in which the main protagonist, Phoenix Walker, wakes in the hospital after a life-changing accident. And it, as I read the um, chapter aloud, I was able to bring this table of writers to tears. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, I think I have something here that maybe deserves to be out in the world. And that's when I started um, pursuing the path of publication. So that was some time after I started writing for myself. Very cool. So when did your first book get published? End of 2020, my debut novel, Goodbye Orchid, came out. And now, because readers, and especially when I was meeting with book clubs, really wanted to hear more about the story of Phoenix and Orchid, um, I wrote the prequel, Orchid Blooming, which is now coming out next month in September. Very, very cool. So publishing-wise, did you go the self-publishing route to traditional words today? Which route did you go? So my debut novel, I published traditionally with um, Kohler Books. They're based out of Virginia Beach. Lovely group to work with, very collaborative. And um, I had a really good experience learning because that first novel, there's such a learning curve. And I thought, let me for the next um, two, actually there's a third one coming out in 2023 in the Goodbye Orchid trilogy. Um, I thought, well, let me learn more about the production side of the process that I didn't get to see because that was all behind, you know, um, a black, in a black box. And so um, this time I've actually set up an imprint, a zine press, which I'm really proud to say is a registered B Corp or benefits corporation which oh, is cool. um, administered in the state of New Jersey. Yeah, so social and environmental goals are built right into the mission of the imprint, Azine Press. 
That is very, very cool. No, I totally, and I think that um, that is awesome. What is the name of the imprint? It's called Azine, A-Z-I-N-E, which has um, some double meaning to it. First of all, I love that it has A to Z in there, like it covers everything. And then um, Azine, if you look it up, if you just Google it, it is the name of a, a family of chemical compounds. And there's something about the magic between the main characters, Phoenix and Orchid, you know, readers tell me this, that chemistry and the way that they change each other, I think is captured by this idea of a zine. So um, yeah, I really, I really love the name. Very cool. So is your second book coming out under that imprint? Yes. So Azine Press will put out Orchid Blooming in September, September 13th, um, 2022 is the release date. And then 2023 for Always Orchid. Very cool. So when you, because you started this to um, sort of communicate out what was going on in your life, right? You use this as a vehicle for things like that. What is your writing goal? Like, what what do you now see now that you've done this, now that you've been with the tribe? We're going to talk about the tribe in a minute. What is your writing goal? Like, where, where do you want to go with all of this? Yeah, I mean, I have a few ways of thinking about it. And I love the question because when I speak at writers' conferences, one of the topics I talk about is personal brand. And I think it's so important. I often ask authors to articulate what's the reason they write beyond the obvious um, profit or functional purposes. And so when I started on my writing journey, my publishing journey, I asked myself the same question. And for me, the simplest articulation is to say, and it's not just my writing goal, but my overall life goal, the legacy I hope to leave, is to inspire hope and empathy for people and planet. Now, not everything I do in my life can achieve all of that. And I think writing is a part of achieving that the work I do as a climate reality leader and um, an advocate for sustainability does part of that. My corporate life and um, that's very rich and meaningful to me does part of that. So there's different parts of my life that um, achieve these things, but certainly I've heard from readers that Goodbye Orchid, Orchid Blooming absolutely inspires hope and empathy for people. And I've heard from two um, groups of readers, one of whom has actually um, been through medical trauma or difficulty and feel very seen on the pages because of what the, the protagonists go through. And then on the other hand, there are also people who haven't had that misfortune in their lives, which is good, you know, fingers crossed, but they say that seeing through the character's eyes actually does deepen their empathy. And when they play those words back to me, it's incredible because here I've written, you know, this intent for myself on a piece of paper in a brand house and to have people who've experienced my work be able to say back to me that that's what they're experiencing is so meaningful. Oh, that is amazing. That is amazing. Let's talk about your tribe. So you found a writing community, which is awesome. Always encourage writers to do that. Um, what has, well, let me ask, let me go back. You talk a lot about readers. Have you done in-person events? I have. So it is interesting. That's such a good question since my debut came out at the end of 2020 and that launch was actually virtual. Essentially, it was Zoom calls. It was interviews with bookstores and libraries and 
um, all types of places and, and meeting with book clubs. Since that time, I've had the opportunity to definitely meet many book clubs in person. And that's just such a lovely format to have an intimate um, conversation, to have people ask questions, they're curious about so many things. And they love um, finding out about the hidden Easter egg design details and all the ways that the story weaves together that's more nuanced than um, perhaps they realized in the first reading through. And sometimes it inspires them to wanna go back and read it a second time or a third time. And so those are really wonderful. And actually I'm a member of Novel Network. So book clubs can book time with me, can schedule time with me right through Novel Network. Um, but also I've had other in-person events. So now I've had the opportunity to be in independent and chain bookstores like Barnes and Noble and do signings there. I've had the opportunity to give talks at libraries, at book festivals, and it's lovely to see the in-person events opening up. And what is it like with people? So have you had people approach you that have read the book and come to the event to talk to you or meet you? I have. Yes, I've had people bring their copy of Goodbye Orchid for me to sign. And it's just a lovely feeling. There's um, brain research I read about that said that they've done MRI scans to find out where in the brain lights up as a writer has different emotions and is writing different scenes. And the interesting thing is when they connected the MRI to the reader's brain, the same places in the reader's brain are lighting up. And so oh, what's incredible to me is, yes, it's like, it's as if the relationship between a reader and a writer is about as close as you can get to a brain to brain connection. And so I think that's, you know, I bring that up because you ask about the experience of meeting a reader in person who's experienced my work. And it's, it's lovely because I think um, because of that deep connection that we have with the written word, with stories that touch us. No, it's true. And I think um, uh, people don't realize as writers, we always talk about this so solitary to be a writer for the most part, you know, chew in your words. And I know having a tribe and being able to share your work, but it's very different seeing the impact your work has on readers when they get the opportunity and also who they fall in love with. So when you started Goodbye Orchid, did you intend to make it a series or was it a standalone at the time you released it? So Goodbye Orchid was written and released as a standalone. It absolutely can be read beginning to end. It has the entire um, actually multiple character arcs, an emotionally satisfying ending, and people have, have told me that. Also, readers have said that they love the world so much. They love the characters of Phoenix Walker, who's a successful entrepreneur. You know, we meet him when he's at the top of his game. He's founded his own ad agency. They absolutely love Orchid Page, whom he's fallen in love with. Who, she's a half Asian uh, marketer in the beauty industry, and she's had challenges in her childhood and overcoming those challenges have made her resilient and strong, but also she's still wounded inside. And so these characters have, have come to mean so much to readers that they were asking me for more. They were asking me for more of the backstory, tell me how they met. And actually when I wrote the prequel Orchid Blooming, not only did it illuminate that relationship more, I found myself, I found myself surprised by secrets in their relationship that came out on the page as I was writing it. And then in addition, readers have asked me for a sequel. They wanted to know what happens after the last 
um, scene in Goodbye Orchid. And so that's what book three is coming out in 2023. That is exciting. Um, then, then what's next? You know, I am, am such an avid reader that I'm inspired by a lot of work that I, you know, read and experience in the world. And I find that I'm quite drawn to ways in which um, such amazing writers can both entertain and entrance readers and bring us into a world and have us immersed into a whole other experience, and yet also have such a powerful message about what's happening in the world and how we can make the world a better place. And I continue to strive. I think that my work does that to some extent, but I continue to strive to do that in a more powerful way, um, to have the work be able to impact and change the world, but yet not feel like, you know, it shouldn't feel like a lecture. It shouldn't feel like it's trying to do that. I think that's the art is when it, it's so delicately woven throughout and that's what makes it so emotionally satisfying, the way in which writing can, can change us. Very true. But what about work for you? So you're doing this series. The last one's coming out in 2023. What is the next series, books? Do you have an idea? Are you going to branch off into another set, a standalone? Where, where are your thoughts? Because, you know, when the three are done, your fans are going to go, cool, so now what's next? Yeah, and it's interesting to me because this idea that I just articulated about how do I make a better, bigger impact, how do I bring values like sustainability to life does have me thinking about different ways to achieve that. So for me, because my background, my corporate background is in strategy, I, I often think about the why, the question you asked me earlier as a starting point. And then the how is really the second part that you're asking me. You're asking me for the tactics, for the details. And it could go in a number of directions. For instance, I really love um, historical fiction that I've been reading. And I think that's so interesting because sometimes there's such a mirror between what's happened in the past and things that are happening now. And that that can actually educate and give us a way to understand the current, our current times. That'll be Are you ever thinking about branching out of like the romance style? Yeah, in fact, you know, I've had readers tell me that um, my genre is not romance. And actually, because the character growth is so strong that it fits women's fiction or the way that um, Kohler Books published Goodbye Orchid, it was contemporary fiction with romantic elements. And so love, of course, is a very strong emotion that is tapped into um, in both books and in the third one as well. But I think even so romance writers, romance readers sometimes say, yeah, you know, there's enough love on the page there for me to really enjoy this. Um, but some romance readers say, you know, there was a lot more in there than just the two, you know, the hero and the heroine battling things out um, page after page. And so um, they felt like it was, you know, perhaps more women's fiction or contemporary fiction. Would you ever branch out though? Like do like a science fiction or a paranormal or a thriller, anything like that? Or would you stick kind of along the same things that you're doing? 
Yeah, you know, I think that um, I've actually heard a lot of writers talk about <clears throat> when they have those early ideas, they're so like um, delicate and fleeting, it's hard to pin them down. And so basically what you're asking me about is what might come in 2024 and 2025 and beyond. And um, I mean, I, it could be historical fiction. It could be, you know, let's, let's see. And I guess I would ask you, like, if you were thinking about your life in 2024 and 2025, um, what would She's you got 27 picture? books laid out. You're oh my yeah, gosh. Well, say, then I, give I, me some. My series yeah. has like 36 in total. So then give me some I, I'm going across all genres. <laughs> so I think it's, it's important for authors to be able to even just dabble, even if you don't publish in it, to just try different genres because every genre is a different type of writing and it's really exciting in its own way. So I like I've been doing young adult next is is uh, dark noir and then I'm doing like so it's a lot of fun and maybe you should just dabble a little bit try some science fiction or or something like that because if you're engaging your readers like that then it'll be you can just ex your audience could just explode by trying something new or just kind of letting your mind develop in a different way. I love I that advice. That's super cool. I'm going to check out your work. Yeah, so I think it's a, a writer too, because you have a fan base that's going to be hungry and you're, you're releasing one book a year, which, you know, for your readers is five minutes in time because they, you, as a reader, we all know, we like, you know, nom nom, we eat that book in like five yes. seconds. And then we're like, next, please. Building that back catalog is huge. So it'll be interesting, especially if you like historical fiction, because I think a lot is being done with historical fiction around uh, especially stories that haven't been told. Like we don't need another book on Abraham Lincoln, right? For instance, there are little stories that can be told that do have a huge difference and also help people have a story from their view that maybe isn't told a part of their history. Because we say historical fiction, but that's not all Jane Austen and talking about Mr. Darcy, which I'm not a fan of Jane Austen, but, <laughs> yeah. um, that, you know, I think, if, I think that will, would be really interesting seeing, especially with what you're talking about, the impact currently the Orchid series has and what that could make taking your writing um, style into historical fiction, because you're melding into words. And the thing about historical fiction too, and then we're going to have to take a quick break, is that Historical fiction has fiction in it too, because even if you're telling based on a real story, you don't know how, how the whole thing went. You could talk about two characters that had a relationship because like your research shows they maybe got married and they were married from this year to this year, but you don't know how that relationship completely was. You only get snippets. So then as an author, you get to interweave and build the story you want to tell from that, which can be really, really fun to do. Yeah. It's true. And I, I like your point about the, you know, a couple of points about the little stories. And also, um, it does remind me, you know, because I'm Asian American by so my heritage is I'm uh, ancestrally Chinese, even though I was born in the US. And so it does, it's always made me very curious um, what China was like in that era when my parents grew up. And I think there's something about that history that is both interesting, it has a personal aspect to it. Um, yeah, so you're reminding me about that. Yeah, no, that could be amazing. And the cool part is 
you could get to talk to so many people who could tell you different views from different aspects and different um, social standings. And you know what I mean? To feed into that story, to tell a narrative, not about some famous person, you know what I mean? That everybody's heard about, but you tell that little story about that artist woman, for instance, who was in a town that was around what your parents grew up. I'm just making up stuff because mm -hmm. I have no idea, but you know, like, or a musician or something like that, where you get to learn what that was like. I think that could be really fascinating. That's exactly what I'm talking about, about own voice, because mm -hmm. these are the stories I think people can get enraptured with regardless of their background, right? But learning sort of a little piece and you're giving them a little piece of history, a little piece of culture, a little piece, and any amount of education in that direction does what you were talking about on the overall world impact. Even if you're telling the story of this one little person in this one little area, people will learn so much about the culture that education on things like that, I think makes a difference. It's not just, you should do this thing. I think it's, you should understand where the other person came from and where their story comes from, because then it makes it easier to bring things together. And I just pontificated with my gin and tonic. Thank you very much. And to get tongue tied. <laughs> It's so oh true. Goodness. I mean, you're reminding me of, um, there's an author, Claire Chow. I don't know if you know her work, Remembering, um, I think it's called Remembering Shanghai. It's a memoir oh, wow. of her mother's um, memories when her mother grew up in a very wealthy family in Shanghai before the communists took over. And then what happened, you know, and this is actually, it mirrors the story of my family that when the communists took over that they had to flee because otherwise they would have been sent to labor camps. And there are so many stories in there and such both heartbreak, but also very inspiring stories of strength and resilience. Exactly, exactly. Okay, we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Drinking With Authors. Hello, I am the monster of the monster sci-fi show. You may be confused, but I am the superior version of the monster and not just some variant, much like me. This podcast is burdened with glorious purpose. I'm here to say this podcast delivers timely sci-fi and pop culture news plus movie and TV commentary reviews. In the end, is this not simpler? Subscribe to the Monster Sci-Fi Show. It's sci-fi. From a certain point of view, the Monster Sci-Fi Show is part of the ESO network. Our sponsor today on Drinking With Authors is Skunk Brothers Spirits. Skunk Brothers Spirits was started by a family of disabled veterans focused on locally sourced quality distilled spirits. Their name was inspired by their pops, who was nicknamed Skunk. Skunk's father was a moonshiner in Oregon back when it wasn't exactly legal. Now the brothers are taking the family business legal with their Washington-based team using their grandfather's Prohibition-era moonshine recipe to bring small batch spirits to the gorge and beyond. From the moonshine corn whiskey to the apple pie brandy, all of their spirits are handmade in Washington. Believing they already have the best ingredients in the local community, they work with local farmers and suppliers to produce the highest quality spirits from scratch. You can find them on Facebook at Skunk Brothers and on Twitter at Skunk Bros Inc. Or visit their site, www.skunkbrotherspirits.com and use coupon code DWA10 at checkout to read 10% off your order. You can always also ask your local retailer to start stocking Skunk Brother Spirits. Regardless of how you get your hands on a bottle or two, grab a drink and don't forget 
to get skunked. Okay, so we're back. Um, you came from a corporate background, but when you became um, um, a published author, what was something that like you were like surprised by that came, that happened? Like something you didn't anticipate as an author, um, you know, or you, that you'd have to do something like that, something that surprised you. You know, I think there have been there have been a lot of learning moments certainly in my author journey and some of it because before becoming a published author of course my experience with books was as a reader you know as a consumer seeing the end product and so some of the learning has been how much a story can be shaped through the editing process and how different it can be from the start to the finish and in fact the number of editing steps as well you know really um, coming to appreciate the importance of developmental editing versus copy or line editing versus proofreading. Each of those steps is just so important and, you know, an art and a science in and of itself. And, you you know, I think as a layman, you might think, well, editing is just editing or isn't it just checking for grammar? No, you know, there's so much more to it. And so that was a good and interesting learning experience for me. No, it's true. And the um, editing is an art form. Like you have to yes. really... Sometimes it's hard for authors to let their babies go and have somebody else go, maybe, maybe this thing. But I'll tell you, without editors, we sound terrible. Like, I don't care how great of a writer you are, you sound absolutely terrible without an editor because, you know, switching tenses and stuff, you don't even realize. And we, of yeah. course, see words that aren't even on the page. We're like, oh, yeah, no, that's in the book. And they're like, it's, it's really not. <laughs> it's yeah. traumatizing. It's in our head. <laughs> Yeah, you go through and you're like, oh, my editor's gonna have a piece of cake with this one. And then all of a sudden you get the email. It's like, what the hell were you on? Like, this doesn't even make sense. And it's like, no, it it's was just so sound, good. It sounds on a paper. So, okay. So another thing, let's talk a little bit about marketing and stuff like that. Was that shocking to you? How much marketing and things like that that you had to do yourself around the books versus what your publishers did? It might not have been as shocking to me as um, to others who are maybe are, are coming into writing because for two reasons. One, my corporate background, actually I've had three careers in my corporate background in digital technologies, in marketing. So running brands like M&Ms and Three Musketeers and Milky Way and Twix okay. where I launched Twix peanut butter and Dove chocolate in the US and in China. Um, and then my third career in strategy. And so I come at it with decades of experience from a, um, you know, professional experience in marketing. And then secondly, the other reason I say it's not as much of a shock is having joined writing communities, it was something I heard from the beginning. In fact, the reason I started speaking at writers and publishing conferences is because when I joined my first writers group, and we were meeting in a, you know, conference room in a hotel, I sat down, I introduced myself as a marketer from Mars and that, um, you know, talked about the genres that I write. When I introduced myself, this gasp arose in the room and I thought, oh, these people must love chocolate and these are my people. But that wasn't the reason that they, well, maybe part of it, they were excited about the M&Ms and the chocolate. 
But the um, thing that they were more excited about was hearing about my marketing background and asking me to try to explain concepts that might have been more mysterious. And that's what started me on my speaking journey. So I started speaking about um, author brand or personal brand and how to think about it as a concept before thinking about the, the more tactical parts. And then I added on other topics that really the writers around me could use help with. So now I also speak about visual identity or the way in which to collaborate with designers to get great design, book cover design. I speak about marketing strategies before tactics. I speak about marketing mindset. I speak about writing millennial characters if you're not a millennial yourself. So there are a number of foundational topics that um, writers have found really helpful. Have you thought about doing a book about that? I have. I did an outline, a nonfiction outline for one, and I started writing a couple of chapters of that. But my, you know, what I find is, um, as all of us, I'm sure, can relate to, my time is so finite. I do have a full-time corporate job. I'm on a leadership team. So it's really a significant, um, you know, kind of responsibility I have. And that, you know, is, so that's a huge part of my life. And then I'm also married and a mom of twins. Um, and even though my boys are 19, they still need me to some extent. And so um, there's that. And then I wear a third hat in which I try to give back in the community. So I serve on boards of directors. I'm trained as a climate reality leader. I can speak about sustainability. And the board piece, I just rolled off of a board for a school for kids with autism. And I'm now looking for my next um, corporate board actually role in which I can really give back to a purpose-driven organization. And so I, all of that is to say my dance car is pretty full. <laughs> and so yes, not I a ton of time, so. not a ton of time to write a nonfiction book, but it had been on my mind. That's very, very cool. So why do you think, um, did you write when you were younger before you went into the corporate thing where you, you talked about journaling a lot? Did you ever think when you were younger, I want to write a book? Yeah, that's such a great question. And a very funny story comes along with it, which is I we did. We love funny stories. Do share. I, I did um, absolutely want to write. And when I was 17 and getting ready to go to college, I thought I wanted to be an English major. So I sat down with my nice traditional Chinese family and I told them my plan. And I got a little advice back, as you might imagine. They said, you know, that's interesting, but you're also very good. And, and don't laugh, I know it's so cliche, you're talking to this Asian American author. They said, you're so good at math and science, <clears throat> maybe, <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe you should try <laughs> majoring in math or science or engineering. And so the deal that got struck was that I would just try it for a year. They said, just try it for a year. If you really hate it, come back and we can talk You know, again. So I signed up as an engineering major, show up as a freshman on campus, and this again is so cliche, you're gonna laugh again. They put all the freshman engineer into an enormous auditorium and they give us the speech. The speech is look to your left, look to your right. In four years, only one of you is gonna be left. The rest of you are gonna fail out, flunk out. You're not gonna be able to make it. That speech fired me up. I am competitive, I will say, I am competitive. That speech fired me up and I'm like, I'm not gonna fail out. I'm not gonna flunk out. And so four years later, I walked down the graduation aisle with my engineering degree. And the only things that engineering and English have in common are the first three letters of each of those words. I, yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> so, 
okay, but now you're doing strategy. And so it's, you have a little bit of a journey jump from your, yeah. So how do we get to where we are now? Because right. this is not engineering what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, these are good questions. And part of the reason that my alma mater recently interviewed me and put an article out about how you can reinvent your life. And they actually share seven tenets that I had shared with them during the interview. And really it, it comes down to, I think, each step of the way was an experience and looking for what could be interesting to explore. And so, yes, switching from an English major to an engineering major did give me a detour on my author journey. However, it opened up other doors. And so with that engineering undergraduate degree, I was able to start um, my first career in digital technologies, which was actually very interesting, working on supply chain and working on how to make things more efficient. It was actually a good foundation to learn about how businesses work. And from there, I found I was quite intrigued by consumers and brands and you know, what we see on store shelves. And so I got my MBA and I moved into brands. And that actually is a very dramatic shift to go from a, an incredibly um, left-brained, you know, technical black and white area to a very right-brained, creative, ambiguous area, which was a very fun challenge. I loved my years in marketing, working on everything from advertising and promotions and public relations and um, all kinds of fun things, working with some of the best, you know, graphics design agencies in the world, naming agencies, just, you know, lots of fun putting new stuff into the world, launching new products um, in the U.S. and in China. From there, when I came back um, from China, it gave me an opportunity to think about what did I really want to do? And I found in my marketing days, um, although I absolutely adored it, I also felt that so much of what we were doing was in the here and now, um, and that it didn't ever give me enough time to think about the long term. And so the strategy side of things was always appealing to me. And I thought, let me try insights and strategy. And I absolutely adored it, you know, working in consumer and shopper insights and competitive intelligence and foresight and trends. And um, most recently in corporate strategy, working on some of the, um, you know, really strategic questions at the enterprise level before now joining the digital leadership team. I'm re currently responsible for governing our digital transformation, as well as um, looking at digital for sustainability, ways that we can use digital to accelerate how we achieve our sustainability initiatives. And so um, I know it is quite a journey, but each leg of it absolutely you know, make sense. And I feel like all of it comes together now to making me the person I am and giving me the tools to be able to make an impact in the world and giving me the, you know, the insights that I strive to put on my, the pages of my writing. That's very, very cool. And that is an interesting journey because, so I come from a C-level background doing human resources and I did legal and client relations and stuff like that. So I totally totally get what you're saying. One of the things I used to talk about, actually, I still talk about because I do consulting is I think you can change your mind about what you want to be when you grow up over and over again. I'm a firm believer that you should do that. You should not just get stuck in, unless you're very passionate, you absolutely love what you're doing and you wake up every day going, this is the greatest thing in the world. But if you don't do that, maybe take a look at what you want to do when you grow up, you know? 
It's so true. When I speak at my son's schools, um, whether I'm speaking at their high school or I've spoken at their middle schools, I often try to convey that because I think students and especially students that are making their first choice of what college they're going to go to, what their major is going to be, it seems like such a scary choice because they think it's a forever choice. And so I often say it's, you know, like a design thinking exercise. You can try something and then if you don't like it, you can pivot from there. Um, and actually Mensa also um, put out an article from me on this topic about being able to, you know, not have to be able to reinvent and to be able to choose again and again. I think that's something that just starts early on in school is, you know, you're taught like once you hit that high school, they're like, all right, you need to start deciding what you're doing for the rest of your life. Pick it because you're doing it the rest of your life. This decision right here. And it's like, holy shit. Like I got to choose at 18 what I'm going to do when I'm 60. Like, how is that even fair? So I think, yeah, I think the whole changing the mentality is very important because you can change at any time. Yeah. Well, I also, you know, now you have to decide in middle school what you want to be when you grow up because you have to start working towards getting in all the schools. Like it's, I don't know, it's so ridiculous now. I feel like students have to have more choices. And that's what I used to work with. Uh, I was a, the president of a board at a school and I was like, we, we got to do different choices here. We got to show them all of the branches of the tree that they can go on. And sometimes, especially, and I love this about this generation, sometimes you don't need to go to college right away. How about you go do some stuff and then go, this is what I want to go to college for and go learn that thing. Because otherwise, a lot of people, it's interesting I, um, in colleges is they race towards getting, uh, have to study, cram really hard to get done with this test or whatever. And they've learned and retained nothing because they just crammed to get the test done. And I'm like, let me talk about how much money you just spent to do that activity, right? Because you yeah. just spent two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000, maybe more than that on a course. So you could cram, how much are you taking away from that course? Because you could buy cars with what you're, and houses with what you're spending to learn nothing at all. So true. The they lose track of the, they lose sight of the big picture. And you're so right about higher education. Like it's so competitive because I, you know, have 19 year olds in my household. So who have just been through like such, it's such a hard process trying to apply to schools and the expectations of the extracurricular activities that they have beyond, you know, the baseline foundation expectation of academics. The bar is oh, yeah. so high. You know, because you know when you get a job, they ask you, hey, when you were in high school, did you participate in at least three extracurricular activities? And it's like, yes, as a matter of fact, or you're like, nope, but it's like, sorry, should have joined that soccer club. We would have hired you. Like, yeah. it's just, it's so insane. The expectations of nowadays, it's wonder, one of the reasons why like generations are cracking under pressure. The pressure is really strong. And then there's um, some kids who are like, you know what? I'm not even going to try because it's just not worth it. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting too, because I think it's a, and we're getting so off topic. <laughs> but I think it's the gin talking regularly on this show. But I think as um, a country, we need to start changing how education works and how it's paid for and stuff like that because there are people that want to achieve things that don't hit some ridiculous bar that's set for them and therefore don't even have a chance. And if you don't have the money, you don't have a chance. And even a lot of community colleges are going the way of you have to have this, that, and the other to get in. And I'm like, 
no, 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 that's, that's literally not the point of a community college. Thank you. Take that right. down it's a few notches. So if somebody didn't have the opportunity or couldn't afford to be on all the teams or blah, blah, you know, and maybe had to work right after school because they're helping support their family. So they can't have all that. Those are the people that you want to give money to, to be able to go to college and stuff like that, because they've mm -hmm. shown they can do things. So it's but both. No, you it's give it to the, the kids that that's yeah. I have one of those too. Cause like, that was me when I go, when I was in high school, I had to go to work after like I, where I had to go and I had to watch my siblings. And so like, I couldn't do certain things and I had to stop doing soccer and all those because some people do have those obligations. Whereas you have, I know one of the things that just pissed off everybody in my school is the richest kid in our school got every scholarship because they hit everything. Cause you know, they need it. So, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, you're not even giving the kids that actually need these and could change their lives, the opportunities. It's, yeah. Okay. That's School systems, yay. Down a tangent road. <laughs> um, let's, like, before we, we have to end off, let's talk about, you, you're busy with all these things. When and how do you find time to write? What is your writing environment like? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. And it's not easy to find time because I do have a lot of things going on. And I hear this from lots of writers. I think lots of writers struggle with this. And also the marketing, like your question earlier, takes a lot of time. You know, that even if you have a publisher, a great publisher, they're still expecting the author to do a lot on their own. And so um, I would say two things. One, I'm at a life stage where my kids are a bit older and that gives me more free time at night and on the weekends. And then also, um, I do credit my husband. My first book is dedicated to my husband because he really takes care of so many things around the house to be able to help support me to be the best person I can be. So he'll take care of the um, grocery shopping and the dishes and the laundry. And so I feel really lucky about um, you know having his support. And then it's just really trying to be clear about my why and why I want to write to be able to make time for it. But it honestly is not easy. I have to sometimes just take vacation days to have time to, to concentrate. No, that totally makes sense. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I, I just in June stepped out of the corporate world because I was like, I don't have enough time. I need to go do this. And I have a very supportive partner too. And he He's like, yep, you need to go do this. This is this is where you need to be because, um, but sometimes it takes that. Um, okay, shameless self-promotion time. How do people find you in your book? Yeah, so I would love for people to come find the um, heartbreaking, heartwarming stories in Goodbye Orchid and Orchid Blooming. The one easy spot is my link tree. So if they simply go to L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash C-V-D-H, which are my initials of my long name, um, then they'll be able to find, you know, links to my Instagram, my Facebook, my Twitter, my YouTube. And also um, just recently I've launched a Kickstarter so they can look for that to be able to get early copies of Orchid Blooming. Um, and I'm quite, you know, findable and reachable on social media. So I would definitely welcome people to, to do that. My website was just relaunched. So if anybody wants to check out carolvandenhenda.com, they'll see all three books um, on there. And then they'll also learn a bit more about me and I would love for them to sign up for my newsletter and be in touch. Wonderful, wonderful. So goodbye orchids out. And what is the one coming out here in September? So Orchid Blooming is coming out September 13th. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Carol, thank you so much for being on this podcast with us. We've really enjoyed it. It was so fun chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, guys, this has been Drinking with Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. My co-host has been the amazing C.R. Rice. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review us now that you've been drinking along with us in this episode. The review should be spectacular. We can't wait to see it. And we will see you guys next time. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.